0: Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church this morning, as Hal says. uh, This is traditionally Palm Sunday, and we will hear about Palm Sunday. I also would like to return to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, so we will try to uh, manage both of those. The Palm Sunday address will probably be a little bit shorter But I plan to join those, bring that subject more to the front next week. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. This is the message that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to uh, Martha as she was addressing him regarding Lazarus' death. And the Lord was not the least bit concerned because he knew that Lazarus had eternal life. Even though Lazarus would return in his mortal body, he also had a future of eternal eternality with his Savior. We have a few seconds now for our spiritual preparation. We always Take a few seconds. Those seconds are designed for you to uh, examine your own souls, your own self, and for you to confess any sins or simply to begin your concentration on our worship service. So let's take a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and then I will open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this particular day as we will remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his entry into Jerusalem. This is a historical event. It was an important event, certainly a fulfillment of prophecy. And this morning, as we read the passages from that event, we pray that we would understand what was happening not only then historically, but the future of that event and what we might learn from it this morning. We're also thankful, Father, for the remarkable way that you've provided for us, provided for us in our eternal future, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your love for us, your demonstrated love to us in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to go to the cross and to redeem us from the guilt of our sins. And we're thankful this morning as we pause just a few seconds for spiritual preparation, that we have the opportunity to acknowledge the sins that we may have committed but have already been resolved at the cross. And for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we simply acknowledge those sins and move on. For those who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not standing in front of the barrier of sins, but you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. We ask for your blessing upon our service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I would like to turn to Matthew 21. Yes, it is. Palm Sunday. I'd like to thank Scott for our palm. You can just barely see the top of it uh, off to my left. Therefore, we understand that palms were some of the items that were laid in front of the Lord Jesus Christ as he entered Jerusalem on this particular day. Matthew 21, and I will read the traditional, one of the traditional passages that we associate with, not only associate with the Lord's entry, but also one of the more extensive passages. Matthew 21, verse 1, says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem... They refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, his disciples, and a following that were with him as they were departing through uh, departing Jericho and now approaching the Mount of Olives. And there's a sort of a gradual extension from the Mount of Olives down towards the Jordan And in that same area, that plain, is where Jericho is. And they are proceeding from from there to the Mount of Olives. And on the eastern side is Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion. This first line, tell the daughter of Zion, is also found in Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah 62:11. So the entry into Jerusalem was not simply a, a historical event. This was a prophesied event. The second line, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fold of a donkey. That is Zechariah 9, 9. So we have two fulfillments here of prophecy as the Lord is now preparing to enter Jerusalem. Verse six. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and this would be on the colt, and sent him on, and sent him on them and set him on them and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road on the road then the multitudes who went before and those who follow cried out saying hosanna to the son of god and to the son of david the phrase hosanna is a transliteration from uh, the Hebrew. And it means, deliver us now. Deliver us now. Those who were with the Lord Jesus Christ were, were expecting him to be the king, the king of Israel. Hosanna to the son of David. They knew, they recognized who he was. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this, of course, is Psalm 118, verse 26. So again, we have prophecy that is being fulfilled. Hosanna in the highest. So this is a, a praise, praising the Lord Jesus Christ as he enters Jerusalem. Verse 10, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. This uh, Greek word not only is moved, but they were shaken. They were, I'm not sure the word turbulent is the right word, but they were excited. They were excited that this event was occurring. So the multitudes, they were shaken, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Notice that even though there were many who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, there were others who were doubtful, uncertain, and he still is identified as the prophet, not as the Messiah. He's identified as Jesus who was from Nazareth. And you may remember in our studies, previous studies, that Jesus was not accepted as the Messiah in his hometown of Nazareth. But along the way, there were many who did recognize him. And several events tell us that there were individuals who truly understood who Jesus was. Many of them were women, Mary of of Bethany, Mary Magdalene of Magdala. They came and they recognized that he was going to the cross and they ceremonially washed his feet and spread perfume on his feet. And so there were those who were truly aware of what was happening. What I'd like to do this morning, and I'll try to do this briefly because I would like to spend more time on this week and specifically Resurrection Sunday, as I like to refer to it. Easter is is fine. It happens to be, I think, a name that does not always help us to understand the importance of what happens on Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. But Palm Sunday. What is the importance of Palm Sunday? I think uh, all my life, and probably you also, we've heard messages and details about Palm Sunday, specifically Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. We read the passages in all of the gospels, all of the gospels have reference to this day. And we consider the events of that week. We proceed from then. And yes, Jesus's entry was a fulfillment of prophecy. And we even call it the triumphal entry. And it was, it should be understood as the triumphal entry. But then it seems the triumph ends, not with Christ becoming the king, but with Christ going to the cross. Now, <clears throat> there is no doubt that Christ's death on the cross is a triumph over sin. And that is true. His death on the cross is a the true turning point of human history. But I think there's another point that might be lost in Jesus' triumphal entry. His entry was a warning. A warning that was not understood by those who were there. It was a warning. A warning to Israel that prophecy of the coming Messiah was ready to be fulfilled if they were to be, if they were to recognize it. Israel, is the they, were not ready to accept him as the Messiah. Throughout Jewish history, Israel had been cautioned and even commanded to be obedient. I love the passages in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 9, They are are filled with Moses almost in this presentation to Israel. The continual warning to be obedient. If you are not obedient, you would be disciplined. As a matter of fact, let's turn just briefly, hopefully, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the beginning, we could say, of many of the warnings that Moses gave to Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 5 presents, or we might say reviews, the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 6, Deuteronomy 1, now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded To teach you, which God has commanded, we could say, Moses was commanded to teach them, to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your sons and your grandsons, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, Hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is unique. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And with all your strength. Let's also turn from chapter six one through five to chapter seven. Chapter seven verse six. Chapter seven verse six. For you are a holy people, a set apart people, a special people, those who who have been selected by God to be his people, we could say. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for him, for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than other people, for you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you and because he has kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. Let's read verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is your God, the faithful God who keeps keeps covenant and mercy for thousands of generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him, who opposes him, who rejects him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. These were the commands that Israel understood. They had been uh, told to be obedient. And if they were not obedient, they would be disciplined. Chapter eight, verse 11. Deuteronomy 8:11 Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments his judgments and his statutes which I command you today lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwelt in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up pride arrogance And you forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirst and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fled you, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your hearts, my power and the might of my hand have gained uh, me this wealth. So this is the commands. The Israelites, the Jews, we could say, were to remember who God was, what he has done for them. As a matter of fact, this week, the Passover week was a week when they were to honor God, to glorify him, and to remember who he was and what he'd done for them. So let's turn back to Matthew. But what was happening? If they were obedient, if they remembered who God was, they would be blessed. God would bring blessings upon them. If they were not obedient, then discipline would fall upon them. But Israel was not prepared for the coming of their king, the Messiah. And therefore, Jesus pronounces the discipline upon them. Let's turn to Luke. Let's turn to Luke 19. As the week proceeds, the Lord would come from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And he continued to minister to the the Jews and teach his disciples and he returned every night to the mount of olives and on one of those times that he was returning to the mount of olives Luke 19:41 reports the lord's understanding of the time the times that were ongoing uh with the Jews and within the nation of Israel he says Now, as he drew near, meaning as he drew near to the Mount of Olives in the area of Jerusalem there, he saw the city, Jerusalem, and he wept over it. This was the city that God had had chosen to place his name upon it, had blessed it. And now he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem, saying, if you... He's speaking to Jerusalem, but he's really speaking to the Jewish nation. If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the thing that makes uh, that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. What would make what would bring them peace, which is really the sense of prosperity? It was their obedience. But now they are hidden from your eyes for days will come upon you when you, when your enemies, Jerusalem's enemies, will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you, Jerusalem, and your children within you, uh, within you to the ground. And they will not leave uh, in you one stone upon another. Because you did not know the time of your visitation, the coming of the Messiah. So what is this? Palm Sunday was not simply a day when Jesus appears and presents himself as the king. But it's also a warning to them that the timetable that had been given to them was coming to an end. That the Messiah was here. And you say, timetable. Where is that timetable? That timetable was found in Daniel. Daniel 9, verse 25. Let's turn to Daniel 9. Daniel 9. I'm not going to read all this section, which is verse 24 through 27. But let's look. Let's read verse 25. This is Daniel, writing, but he's being instructed by Gabriel. Know, therefore, and understand from the going forth of the command. And this is Artaxerxes' command. And there are some variations in the ancient calendar and times for the exact time. But we really don't need to know the exact date that this timetable began. Why? Because we know the end date. We know the end date, which was the triumphal entry. And it's important for us to try to nail that date at the beginning, but it's not essential. From the, the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince. So we know that all of this is going to occur And then the Messiah will come. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, 69 weeks. And we can count those days because we understand what these weeks mean. They're weeks. The streets shall be built again and the walls, even in troublesome times. That verse tells us when the Lord Jesus Christ was going to appear. And the Jews knew this. They could have prepared for it. And Jesus does appear. But they are going to reject him. Now, yes, the Lord Jesus Christ needed to go to the cross. And he does. But had Israel, why did he need to go to the cross? He needed to go to the cross because he needed to pay for the sins of the world. But the timetable did not need to stop at that point it could have continued the lord jesus christ after his death burial and resurrection could have re- could have returned very soon and he could have allowed satan the time of his seven uh, seven years and the lord could have returned at that time and his kingdom started but israel had had rejected him and so i believe That not only is this a great triumph, identifying the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but it was also a warning to Israel. The Messiah is here. The timetable given to Daniel has come to an end. And your obedience is required for that timetable to come to a conclusion, for these fulfillments, for these prophecies to be fulfilled. And I think as we, as we read these passages and there's more, let's turn back to Matthew or to Luke, either one. I think as we read these passages and we see Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though his ministry, his three years of ministry, were evident of who he was and his purpose for coming on earth to be identified as the Messiah, they rejected him. And today, the question I suppose we could ask, do we accept Jesus as the Messiah? Uh, As individual believers, yes, we do. But there is also the necessity for nations to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ was. And for us, in our obedience to be blessed by Him. And I think the United States has, in fact, been blessed in that way by many, many uh, who have preceded us who were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we are tested, we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ timetable for us in the church age is not specifically set in our obedience. Is uh, our actions are either going to be blessings, or they're going to be disciplines? And today, as we observe our nation, we go. Th- we're going through some very difficult times. Uh, will we remain faithful, <clears throat> and will we receive uh, once more the marvelous blessings? And I think we're f- probably still receiving remarkable blessings, more so than any other nation. Uh, on earth. But we must continue to be obedient and we must continue to honor Him and glorify Him. <clears throat> Next week, I'll continue uh, more about what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing and the events that are leading up to uh, Resurrection Sunday. But what I'd like to do now <clears throat> is move to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Our reading here, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, may very well be a bit of a, an unfortunate break in the text because I think the first five verses in 1 Corinthians 2 are closely aligned with chapter 1. In the previous chapter, Paul emphasized the simplicity of the gospel message. Those who considered themselves wise simply did not acknowledge the message of Christ's death, his burial and resurrection. Those, there were many in Corinth and there were many who had uh, joined the church, but they were still distracted by other things in their lives. The Jews needed, you may remember, In those in chapter one, the Jews needed miraculous events and the Gentiles needed wisdom, knowledge, remarkable presentations. But the brilliance of God's provision, his plan for salvation was not accepted by many of the Jews and the Gentiles as well it caused Paul to say that the simplicity of God's plan was nonsense to both groups. They rejected God's grace plan. God had asked, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Where was the wise man? The wise man had completely missed the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. And now in chapter 2, Paul continues this matter of separating himself from the eloquence, the philosophic, and the human wisdom of the day. So as we begin chapter 2, chapter 2, I think, just continues that. And it's very easy to see this. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my pe- preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, in order that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is a very wonderful paragraph as the Apostle Paul expresses to us as he tells us that we not we need not be impressed in order to have faith we need not be follow the great human wisdom that is often swirling around us in the cosmic system we simply need to believe the very elementary we could say path for salvation which is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, I have once more broken these into verses, and I think that they they are they're really merged together. But there are significant point, points I think we can make here. First of all, and I, brethren, believers, men and women, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony, the word of God. And we'll see that I think that can also be the message, the message of God. First of all, Paul refers to his presence before the Corinthians, whether he's in the synagogue or the marketplace, because that's where he met them in the marketplace, and he also met them in the synagogue. In the synagogue, there were both Jews and Gentiles. Secondly, Paul says that he did not attempt to impress the Corinthians in any way. In chapter 1, Paul referred to the habit of Jews and Gentiles listening to those who came with swaying oration, superior rhetoric, And philosophical persuasion. But we see that Paul. Did not use those methods. Third. Paul did not want to appear. To compete. With other visiting speakers. That's what occurred in the Gentile culture. Speakers would come. And they would try to be more superior in their presentation or what they had to say than previous speakers. But Paul did not attempt to compete with these other visiting speakers. He didn't want to get lost amid the speakers' competition by means of impressive speaking skills. Fourth, Paul wanted to dist himself from other voices by expressing A simple message, his message to the Corinthians, as it was to the Philippians, as it was to the Thessalonians, to Thessalonica, was simply the Lord Jesus Christ's crucifixion and his saving work. So point five, Paul's message was simple. The gospel of the word of God. His message was from God. It wasn't his message. It was God's message. Verse 2, Paul makes his message clear. This is his point here in in verse 2. For I determined, I think a better word there for us might be I decided. For I decided not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Jesus. Him crucified. Point one, Paul made a decision to concentrate on one subject, the gospel. Paul didn't get involved in debates. He didn't get involved in argumentation. He simply focused on the gospel, bringing a simple message to the Corinthians. Secondly, Paul is not saying that he did not know anything other than the gospel. That's not what he's saying. And I think we understand that. That was not at all his meaning. Paul had been trained by the best or to, uh, orders uh, and he had been uh, submerged, we could say, in philosophic knowledge. He was capable of competing with any of the debaters or the philosophers, but he chose not to do that. And we'll address why here in a moment. Paul was not representing himself, but the God of the universe and his son's redeeming work. Paul knew the truth, and that was what he wanted to communicate. He didn't want to distract. Four, the message of the cross needed to be simple for it to be clearly understood. The message of the cross needed to be simple for it to be clearly understood. We often confuse the message by including unimportant or even distracting information. The good news about Christ's death on the cross for our sins must not be muddled by irre, uh, irrelevant details or our own personal interest. And very often that happens. We have maybe a subject that's on our mind and we encou- encounter an op- an opportunity to give the gospel. And instead of making the message clear, making it simple, we bounce off into some other debate or a specific matter that we find intriguing. And pretty soon, we find ourselves in a discussion about something that has nothing to do with the gospel. And we need to avoid that. Now, in verse 3, Paul refers to his condition when he arrived in Corinth. And this condition, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, uh, is highly debated by many theologians. Some believe that this was definitely speaking about his health. Uh, Others would say, no, he's speaking about uh, his um, psychological approach, his humility. Well, first of all, When Paul arrived in Corinth, he apparently was not in the best of, and I'm going to use the word personal condition here. Paul apparently had, in Corinth, Paul apparently had three discouraging problems, and he lists them. I don't think they are meant to be reiterations of the same thing. I think he actually uh, 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 describes three different parts of his condition. So first of all, when he arrived in Corinth, Paul apparently was not in the best personal condition. Paul lists three conditions that I believe, I believe he lists these three conditions that caused him problems. First of all, he said he had weakness. Paul says that he was weak. There is, again, much speculation regarding this weakness. We don't know if he's referring to an illness or simply despair. It could easily be either. The normal use of the Greek word in the epistles is a spiritual weakness. In this context, Paul's anxieties might have caused physical illness, which it can very often happen to us. When we're worried, when we're anxious, very often we cause ourselves To be physically ill. What do we call that? Psychosomatic uh, illnesses. So in the context, Paul's anxieties might have caused physical illness. Uh, The work in Corinth had a rocky start. Let's turn to Acts. Just back a couple books. Acts eighteen. Acts eighteen. Paul was never beyond danger. Wherever he went, he was a Jew with a remarkable message and he was going to uh, the Gentiles. And so it was always a challenge for him. And then when the uh, many of the Jews who rejected his message, that caused even greater problems for him. Acts 18.1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens. Remember, it was not very well accepted there by the philosophers, although there were some who believed. And he went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy, from Rome, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers and he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now, this is the first part of what was happening there in in Jerusalem, in Corinth. Uh, let me continue in verses five and six. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. So he was dismissed from the synagogue and his ministry there was no longer associated with the Jews, but it was with the Gentiles, which, of course, was understood. Let's move on here. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2.3. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul adds here in point three, in fear, which might be apprehension as he began in Corinth. He'd had a rough time coming out of Thessalonica. Uh, he was not real well accepted in Athens. And now in Corinth, he has uh, a real challenge. And he's going to remain there for at least 18 months, possibly longer. So he says he came in in fear. And this is possible because God appeared to him in a vision to encourage him uh, I brought us back to 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going back to Acts 18. Acts 18, this is one of those passages where the Lord Jesus Christ were, s- speaks to him to encourage him. And in 18 verse 9 and 10, Acts eighteen nine and 10, now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. If everything was going well, we wouldn't have this passage, verses 9 and 10. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And it says, and he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So uh, there's a, an appearance here. That Paul was there in fear. Fourth, Paul also says he was beset with trembling. Again, the passage in Acts 18 might lead us to believe that Paul thought he was in physical danger. But God encouraged him saying, you will not be harmed here in Corinth. So he says he was beset with trembling, but God tells him not to worry. And then five we might think that Paul was a tower of spiritual strength throughout his ministry, but Paul encountered daily challenges, some extreme hazards. Uh, some of those hazards were uh, extreme, even life, life-threatening. He requested prayer for courage. We can find that in Ephesians 6:19. He says, pray for me that I'll have the boldness to present the gospel and certainly had a list of perilous events in his life. Uh, we go to Second Corinthians six four and also chapter eleven twenty 2 Corinthians six four and eleven twenty three. And you probably remember reading those. He lists all of the disasters that came upon him. And so the Apostle Paul was never uh, without uh, challenges and difficulties in his life, and i 'll leave second corinthians six four and eleven twenty three for you to read on your own verse four in verse four, Paul clarifies that he was not the power in his message, it wasn't his power, and my speech, my word, my message, and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. He was the human that was speaking, but it wasn't his human wisdom. But in demonstration, in proof, uh, intervention of the spirit and of power. So point one here in verse four, Paul further explains that his presentation, his content was not of human origin, not his. It was not meant to be impressive from a human point of view he was not trying to be impressive the gentile co- uh, culture loved the debater and the philosopher paul did not desire to participate in that arena he didn't want to compete with them paul gave god gave paul the message and paul simply delivered it secondly paul apparently paul's speaking uh, approach uh, his speaking approach or manner was uh, unimpressive. Uh in 2 Corinthians 10:10, 10, 10, I'd like to go to that passage. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10:10. 10, 10, his presentations were not impressive. 2 Corinthians 10:10. 10, 10, verse 10 says for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now that was an accusation made against Paul. Uh, now had his uh, speech been eloquent and had his presence been stunning, then this accusation would fall flat. So it, there's probably some uh, truth to this that uh, his His letters had great impact, but his bodily presence uh, was weak and his speech was not competitive to other philosophers uh, or debaters. Point three, Paul was certainly not pretentious. He didn't put on airs, as we often say, but merely allowed the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to persuade. Paul is not a salesman he didn't try to be a salesman but he was a servant of god and the the servant does not seek credit for when we present the gospel it is not our resp- our responsibility to persuade when we have the opportunity to deliver the gospel we must remember that it is not our responsible our responsibility to persuade persuasion is god the holy spirit's responsibility. We don't change the minds of others. God does. That does not mean that we don't have an important role in evangelism. But our first and primary responsibility is to tell others about Christ, not trying to impress them. We must not be prideful about our presentation because all the credit goes to God. As we often say, To God be the glory, great things he has done, not things we have done. And then, verse 5, as we conclude this paragraph, Paul concludes, not with the human power, but with the power of God. In order that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's where we rest, we should rest every day not in our own abilities, but in the power of God. First of all, Paul emphasizes that the Corinthians' faith should not be based on human persuasion or ability. The Corinthians were very often impressed by the debaters, by the scribes, or by the wise man who appeared. And he says your faith cannot be based upon that. Secondly, this returns to the Corinthians being splintered by various speakers visiting Corinth. Many were impressive, and they gathered uh, followers around them because of their human eloquence and their wisdom. But their message was human. It was not of divine power. Three, their faith was not to be founded, was not to be found... In the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Corinthians faith was not to be found in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For truly, we must remember that God, the Holy Spirit, is the power of the gospel. We must be able to explain the gospel clearly, not stumble, not bumble. We are, but we are only the conduit for the good news. God is the source. God, the Holy Spirit, is the persuasive force. So finally here, in our summary and application, Paul did not want the Corinthians to think he was competing with other visiting speakers. He was not seeking a level of popularity or esteem. In fact, Paul's message separated himself from other itinerant Orators. The redemptive work of Christ was the centerpiece of Paul's message. Paul knew that a faith that is grounded in divine power cannot be defeated by human power. But faith that is grounded in human power can be overthrown by greater human power, the philosopher or the debater. Our application here is the presentation of the gospel does not depend on human ability or talent, but simply a desire to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the speaking ability, but the content of the message. We must be able to simply and clearly state the good news to the unbeliever. And that's Paul's message here. We have a message. God the Holy Spirit assists us in presenting and we present it in a very simple, understandable way, and then God, the Holy Spirit, works in the lives of those who hear the message. Their volition is then involved. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this message. We're thankful that the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the gospel is not something that's difficult to understand. It's not something that we need to present in a very in an extremely Uh, eloquent way. Yes, speaking as clearly and properly as possible, but the power truly is in the message by means of God the Holy Spirit. We're thankful for this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.